Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dove and Rose podcast. I'm Walter Emerson. I'm in the middle of uh, chapter two right now of uh, Joan of Arc's story by the famed historian Régine Pernut, and I'm going to kind of continue on with that right now. We've been talking about uh, St. Joan of Arc, and we've been emphasizing the uh, phenomenological approach that we're we're following Pernude as she reveals Joan to us as Joan appeared in history. So this is not a reconstruction of her life from sort of a scientific, you know, let's put everything together and then let's start at the beginning. Uh, and and work our way through. This is really looking at Joan, uh, uh, the appearance of Joan as she is appearing. So that's a a statement I like to use uh, that has sort of a, a phenomenological edge to it. We're looking at Joan appearing, uh, the appearance of Joan as she is appearing. And so we, we started with the fact that uh, she was first really came on the scene historically when, uh, you know, Dunois heard about the maid that uh, was uh, heard as, as coming across the south of the Loire, heading toward the king. And there was this mystery. It was a mystery around the story of the maid. There had been a legend in the in the area about how France would be saved by a maiden from uh, uh, Lorraine. And there appeared to be some mystical sort of mystery behind this, off in the mist somewhere. And then we we found that she was a reality. So the story story that that was unfolding had, had a mystery and a story like character to it. But as with really the 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 genre of stories and fairy tales it it underlies a truth so the story is revealing itself as a truth and so we've now gone with Joan all we know is she's a mysterious maiden who has arrived in Chinon south of the Loire where the Dauphin Charles VII, the Dauphin means the one designated to be um, the king. Um, Later we'll find out, you know, Joan had been asked why she didn't refer to Charles as the king and why she referred to him as the Dauphin. And she said that she would not refer to him as the king until he was crowned in uh, Reims which is one of the tasks that she had been, had been given to do. We also noted that she, she didn't come, she came with a group, a small group of about half a dozen uh, soldiers and servants. And we also noted that this was, uh, it wasn't like the entire troop was this mysterious uh, group coming out of the mist somewhere, but that the men she was with had were under the um, under Captain Robert de Baudricourt of Vaucouleur, which was a a loyal uh, uh, city or loyal town fortification rather, 
um, you know, way out in that, toward that Lorraine area and was very uh, loyal uh, in the middle of enemy territory and was very loyal to Charles VII. And the, these these men came from him. So there was there was there's this connection between this great mystery of this this young of this young lady and the reality that uh, there's a certain trustworthiness. So if they had all just sort of come and you know we don't know who you all are, but in fact we don't know who she is. She's very mysterious, but we do know who you are, or at least we know who your captain is, and we trust your captain. And uh, in the last uh, episode, I mentioned the fact that, you know, Régine Pernoud points out that, you know, Charles VII had Robert de Baudricourt not in addition to sending them, had he not sent another messenger to Charles uh, confirming that he did in fact send them and that he wasn't saying what they were, what she was about was true, but that, she, she should be heard that they did in fact come from him. That that trust between Charles and Robert Baudricourt is is the reason she was heard, and history could have been changed uh, forever had Robert Baudricourt, who was originally a great skeptic, as we've talked about, who finally she uh, Joan won over as she does everybody, and so we we so now we see we've got the group there, and then we also saw that she she convinced. Charles the seventh when she finally got to see him she convinced him and she convinced him by revealing to him the answer to a prayer that really was his own personal private prayer that that no one other than possibly his Chamberlain knew uh, was a prayer and that was his doubt that he was truly the Dauphin the doubt that you know he might have been illegitimate and no one knew about this uh, prayer, she came in and she confirmed with him that he was, in fact, the legitimate uh, uh, rightful heir of the throne of France. And so there, so th- this is how she's appearing in history. So this is the, this is the appearance of Joan as she's appearing. And so there's an element of grounded truth and there's an element of mystery. Now, as we move uh, forward, you know, one of the one of the things that um, we find out that Joan said was she had made a comment upon arriving in Vaucouleurs, I mean, in, in uh, Chinon from Vaucouleurs. She said, I shall last one year, hardly more. Now, now this is uh, this is adding mystery upon mystery. So now we have a young 17-year-old woman who appears to be very pious, very well-spoken, uh, a, a very a very good uh, uh, young lady who has traveled faithfully with a troop of, of soldiers through enemy territory on, on a mission from, you know, really out in the boondocks, so to speak. And... She one of the things she says when she arrives is, "I shall last one year, hardly more." So there, there's a there's there's something we have to deal with 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 Joan of Arc, and that is there's not only the phenomenon of Joan, but there are the metaphysics that surround her. So again, we're we're kind of bringing together, and jo- I, I believe Joan brings together phenomenology, which is that that. Uh, appearance of that which is appearing and metaphysics which implies something 
stable, something that never changes. And importantly, uh, and I haven't made this distinction before, but I would say a metaphysics in which reality is mind independent. You know, because this is one of the big changes that happened over, you know, since, since Descartes and through to the philosophers of the modern era for the most part is the idea that reality is actually mind-dependent. And, you know, starting, so if you go back before that, you go back to Plato and, and, and through, successfully, through a thousand or more years of, of Christendom, you know, the idea that reality is mind-independent, that there is a real reality out there, and I don't create reality in my mind, but I'm, I'm engaged in a real reality that's out there. And I, I have to try to conform my mind to what reality is. Uh, so with Plato, that was with, that was the forms, right? To, to conform to what these, these um, unchanging principles were. Now when, with Augustine and then the advent of, you know, Christendom, you know, um, the Plato's the good, that sort of brought light to the forms, sort of take away one of the O's, and it became God who brought light to these forms, and that the forms were really in the in the mind of God, and that lasted successfully for many 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 years through Christendom, thousand a millennium. And so the idea was that reality is mind independent, and that we seek to conform ourselves to reality. We conform ourselves to truth, beauty, and goodness. Now, from Descartes on, you know, for the most part, that was disrupted. And, and when you go from Descartes into to Kant and beyond, to, you know, Hegel and all the rest, and uh, certainly Nietzsche, um, and all these, the idea was that you know, now we're in a, a, a position, and, and this really got disrupted with Descartes more than, you know, at that, that moment in time, where suddenly reality is mind-dependent. And so how do I really know what's out there? How do I really know what reality is? How do I really know what the forms are? And so I have to kind of bring that projection into my mind and uh, formulate, uh, you know, these ideas. And if you're Kant, you're... you're formulating these ideas, these from, from innate a priori concepts that were born and all that kind of, and all that kind of thing. And what, what I'm, what I'm suggesting is, is that this, this is, this dilemma, I think Joan is going to really challenge us on, is this, this, when we bring together the phenomenology and the metaphysics of Joan. So what we're going to have to deal with is, um, who, where's she getting these messages? I shall last one year, hardly more. Now, remember, you, you may say, oh, we, I know the story of Joan. Like she was in her father's garden and St. Michael appeared to her. Okay, we don't, we don't know that yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> we don't know. She's, she's a mystery that's come out. And she's saying things like, I shall last one year, hardly more. Where is she getting that information? Is this just... Uh, subjective thing she's making up in her mind. It, it, it would be kind of odd, I, I guess, to, to say that. Or is this something that's mind independent, that's coming from, 
sort of a, a something that we would perceive in a, a, a metaphysics more similar to Plato's um, mind independent uh, type of uh, of knowledge and so we're, we're going to need to we're going to need to kind of watch that because there's both a play of phenomenology and metaphysics here now her she's given a an aide uh, who later would become her page called louis uh louis de, de, de coutts and uh, for those of you familiar with um uh, the book by mark twain he writes his book as if he is that page. Uh, it's a very, very great story. And by the way, it reminds me that uh, I am the co-host of the Heroic Hearts podcast with Amy Chase. And this is what we do in Heroic Hearts. Uh, we, in, in season one, we discuss Joan of Arc through the eyes of Mark Twain and his story, which is really fast. It's different than the way Regine Pernod tell, tells a story. It's the same story. But he tells it uh, differently, and, and Amy and I go through that. So please visit heroic-hearts.com, heroic-hearts.com, and, and listen to Amy and I. And in season two, we actually discuss uh, St. Therese. And I uh, would also like to mention that Amy has a Substack site called Occidental Tourist that really fits in intellectually very well with all of this. So I would encourage you to to look at that. So Louis, Louis de Coutts, um he he referenced something about the phenomenon that was before him in Joan of Arc because now now that she's I say she's convinced she's convincing Charles the seventh because she's she certainly overwhelmed him with her response to him but she's Charles still needs to kind of check this out right so he's going to put her through some questioning. And he'll eventually send her to Poitiers, where the theologians and leaders of the church that fled in exile from the English and Burgundian forces in the north, who fled in exile, are now in Poitiers. And Poitiers is like the headquarters of, you know, the church and theology and, and all that uh, that's loyal to Charles VII. So th th that group is in Poitiers. And so he's going to eventually send her there to be questioned. Say, well, what do you all think? I mean, so he's being, uh, is he being cautious? Is he being prudent and cautious? Or is he being skeptical, afraid, and timid? Uh, I, I don't know. Probably a little bit of, of all of it. Charles is not exactly a He's kind of a timid, his character is not really fully formed at this point as far as uh, having a robust and brave <laughs> kind of a character. He's not there yet. So it's probably a little bit of timidity, but also probably we would have to give him some credit for a little bit of prudent, uh, um, a little bit of skepticism, but also a little bit of prudence in, in wanting to make sure. I, I, I suppose we would probably want to do the same thing, but Louis, de, but before she goes, Louis, Louis de Coutts is, is seeing this phenomenon. And there was something that he noticed, and he, he later on in the trial of nullification, he wanted to bring this out. There was something, you know, you, we remember the little things. We, we just remember certain things that maybe other people would pass over. Maybe we would forget about, but certain things. 
uh, appear to us as being meaningful. And I remember I've talked about the map of meaning through my podcast that, you know, what we're trying to do is assess as best we can through empathy, through sort of an empathic devotion and discussion on St. Joan of Arc, what her map of meaning might look like. So we all have these maps of meaning. And they, they, they really uh, point to what we find meaningful in life versus all the irrelevances. And so one of the points of meaning that stuck out to Louis de Coutts was he says, at that time, and he's referring to when she was brought into the royal uh, residence. So she was put into one of the castles with uh, ladies to look over her. Uh, she had at least won the confidence of Charles enough to, to receive a royal um, lodging. And Louis says, at that time, when I was with Joan in that tower, I often saw her on her knees praying, as it seemed to me. Nevertheless, I could never hear what she was saying, even though sometimes she wept. And so, uh, again, we're adding an, another layer of, of mystery. So Louis de Coutts sees this as a, a phenomenon. So what we, what we do know, we do know that Joan is a prayerful person. And there, there's a sense that maybe she senses she's communicating in her prayers, you know, with God, with, with heaven. And again, that brings in, uh, you know, have we proven that there's a metaphysical na- nature that's consistent with the church, that's mind independent, and, you know, the forms are in the mind of God? No, but we're certainly getting the idea that she's bringing those two together. There's, there would seem to be some indication that Joan is perceiving a mind independent uh, metaphysics in which she's praying to God and that reality, she's, she's trying to conform herself to that reality outside of herself that's God, that's coming from heaven. And so she's, you know, as I see it, she's really, she, she's kind of bringing to us phenomenology through her own self, through the way her story appears, or we should say perhaps that the Lord and Our Lady are bringing her to us in a phenomenological manner because we're only perceiving her phenomenologically. But at the same time, there's a clear sort of reference to the unchanging metaphysics uh, of the church. So Louis found that to be something that really hit his his map of, of meaning. Now there's something, there's, there's an introduction now at this point to uh, another player that's going to be very important in the story of Joan of Arc, and that is the Duke of Alençon. And the Duke of Alençon is a young man about Charles's age, and he is uh, related to Charles. And long story is he was captured in in a war with the English. He was imprisoned for five years, and he was only 23 years old, and he couldn't pay the entire ransom. So part of the ransom had to be that he made a promise that he would not uh, fight against the English uh, until the ransom was paid. So he was basically was a prisoner of his own word of honor, which 
in those days still meant still meant something. And so he was not about a day's ride away from Shunan, and he was quail hunting, and he was he was doing you know you know following his word. He was he was not fighting uh, the English, but then he heard about this maid, and obviously he was he was quite intrigued. So he he arrives he, he rides in haste, and he arrives the next day to Shinan, where uh, Charles is, and where the the, uh, the maid Joan of Arc is. And Joan, um, you know, asks who, who he is. And when she finds out, um, she says, you know, you are, she says uh, to the Duke of Alençon, you are very welcome. The more the blood of France is gathered together, the better it shall be. I find this to be a, a striking statement, very worthy of our reflection. Because in that um, more of a platonic, metaphysical, um, you know, mode of thinking, um, the, you know, the, the idea is that it's important that if you're part of the blood of France, See that 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 means you that kind of defines that is the reality to which you are working to conform yourself. You know, either you are a a noble person who's fulfilling that role as being in the noble house of France, you know, or you're not. So it's not it's she's she's giving him an honor he deserves honor for who he is he's he is a good warrior he's been very faithful he's all the things that a good um you know a good warrior should be but what she points to is not not that you're very welcome because you're so skilled because you're a young fighter you've proven proven yourself the first thing she mentions is not not that but that you're welcome because you are the blood of France. And the more of the blood of France gathered together, the better it shall be. So she sees some spirit, some spiritual power. There's something that she sees that comes from the, the blood of France. You know, that 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 is is you see it's it's beyond, it's it's a almost like a form that's beyond the individual. And I think that's very, that's, this, this has always struck me as one of the most important things that Joan said. And so she's, she's, she's starting to give us an impression, she does to me anyway, she starts giving me an impression that she really does have a sense of mind-independent platonic uh, orientation. Um, that is revealed through what we would perceive to be a strong Catholic faith. And, and we're witnessing through Louis de Coutts possibly um, witnessing a, a prayer life. So this, this whoever this mysterious person is, she's well-spoken. She's, she's, there's so many positive uh, things about her. And she prays, she and she says things that might give us an indication that she she really does 
have that sort of orientation, you know, that more mind-independent uh, platonic orientation. And, and, and you could say, well, of course, everybody did back then. It wasn't until later that Descartes came along. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's, that's fair enough. I, I'm just simply saying that what we want to, I think what we want to do is see, as Joan reveals herself, how does that play, how does that play out? Does it seem like a reasonable uh, uh, marriage between the two? Of, meta, of the the metaphysics, uh, the pre-Cartesian, you know, the metaphysics of the church over a millennium merged together with the phenomenon that we're seeing. Does that does that really fit to, uh, fit together? I suggest that we'll see that it that it does, and it's a very powerful type of coming together of her as a phenomenon and the metaphysics of the church. And so we'll, we'll see that very well. Now, to the point of her, so she goes to Poitiers and she is questioned by, um, she's questioned by the group of theologians and things, and she, and she does very well. And one of them, Al, Albert, uh, Albert uh, 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 Duchess, I'm probably saying that really wrong, I'm not too good at saying the French names, but he was one of them, and he and he said later he said this girl spoke terribly well. And he added, "I would really like to have had so fine a daughter." So we're, now we're, we pick up a little bit more. She she's she speaks well. She she is someone that comes across as we'd like to have her as a daughter. I mean, this is a very very uh, this is a very good person. So we can kind of add that. Now more is being revealed, and this is the way it works when phenomena. We don't want to rush to judgments. Because one thing we, we have a tendency to do is, oh, here comes this young lady. She's with a bunch of men. She's dressed like a man, and she's dressed like a soldier. And I'm going to make all kinds of judgments about that. Oh, wait a minute. Let's, let's hold off on that. Let's bracket that. Let's, let's kind of bracket our presuppositions and our biases and things like that. And let's just let's let... Uh, the as the phenomenologists say, um, let the let this reveal itself um, as it is in itself. Let let this this person let the situation reveal it itself, reveal herself as she is in herself before we start making uh, those those judgments. But finally, and I'll wrap I'll wrap this up with um, a a. A quote by um, again, I'll mess this name up. Seguin, Seguin, Seguet, Seguet, who was one of the uh, theologians at, at Poitiers, who is going to tell us something now to tell us it's going to open now a little bit more of the historical context. Because if you remember, we we started with opening the historical context. We learned a little bit more. Oh, she came from Vaucouleur, and there were some things happened at Vaucouleur. And de Baudricourt was very skeptical, and then she won him over, and then she came. Okay, that's a little bit broad, but we still don't know like where where is she ultimately from? What's her what's her childhood like? We still don't know that yet. But we're gonna now we're gonna and and then we've uh, then we've been discussing now the broadening understanding of her phenomenologically, 
and spiritually and who she, who she really is and what she's saying. So we've, we've been kind of now learning more about who she is, who her, who she is character wise. But now we're going to go back and learn a little bit more historically, a little bit more historical context. So Sagan says, when she was watching over the, this is what he learned during the Poitiers trial. When she was watching over the animals, a voice revealed itself to her, which said that God had great pity on the people of France and that she, Joan, had to go into France from her home on the frontier. Upon hearing that message, she began to weep, and then the voice bade her to go to Vaucouleur, where she would find a captain who would bring her safely into France unto the king, and that she should have no uncertainty. And so she did, going to the king's court without delay. And now now we're starting to get more of a, of a picture she was somewhere close to Vaucouleur. She was uh, apparently a shepherdess. She was watching over animals. And a voice revealed itself to her, telling her that God had great pity on the people of France and that she was to go to the king, the designated king, and bring, um, uh, bring you know, hope and help. Now that now that is this is incredibly significant because now you can start to sense this uh, not only the a little bit more of the history, but the the incredible claims. So th- these are claims that if we let the story reveal itself to us in itself and remove our biases, it's telling us that, you know, there, there, were, um, there, were, there were literal voices, realities beyond, you know, independent of Joan's mind that she was receiving instruction from. And this is this is huge, because in in if you look in modern history, people that want to write off Joan of Arc will tell you that she made this up in her head, and that you know that all kinds of terrible um, you know stories that are just completely false that no serious historian uh, uh, would consider, um, as even Regine Pernod you know said. Um, you know, serious historians don't consider these terrible uh, stories, but people, people are so caught up in the idea today that there is no independent reality, that we just make up everything in our head. Reality is just in our head, that she had to have just imagined this or that she had to have, there's something wrong with her or, or something like that. And um at this point, we don't have anything necessarily to disprove that, um, but the claim is there. The, the claim is there that there is an independent reality telling her what she needs to do and that it is from God. And now we've got pieces of the puzzle so I'll ask you to contemplate the pieces of the puzzle. 
as we as we prepare, you know, to kind of go through the rest of the chapter next time and uh, see kind of see where it goes. So we're going to contemplate that a little bit. And we've learned a lot more about Joan of Arc. We've learned a lot more about her her spiritually, character wise, just what the what we're uh, what's revealing itself in the phenomenon more and more is coming into sight into our the the opening on our map of meaning and we've learned a little bit more about the context of her historically and it's it, there's a, it's an amazing story that's developing it, it's a story of epic proportions that a 17 year old country girl has come from through enemy territory to literally crown a king to raise a siege uh, of enemy forces crown a king and save France and who is praying who at least perceives herself to be in a mind independent reality of metaphysics and the story that she tells tells us why she, uh, you know, how this came about, that she has received a, a voice that told her that God had great pity on the people of France, and this is what she had to go do. So the, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing, amazing story developing. So we're going to continue on, contemplate that a little bit. There's a lot there. So contemplate that a little bit. Make sure to go and visit heroic-hearts.com and listen to Amy and I, uh, particularly in season one, where we talk about Joan of Arc through the lens of Mark Twain. And visit Amy's Substack site, uh, the the uh, the Occidental Tourist. So I'll check with you um, check with you next time, and we'll continue this amazing journey. Thanks. God bless. Talk to you next time. Bye bye.